Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, talk about a gargantuan gourd. A Richmond, B.C. man has become the first Canadian to ever win the U.S. National Pumpkin Way-Off thanks to a 2,200-pound giant he calls Mama. How do you possibly grow a pumpkin that big? How do you transport it? We'll get the inside scoop. He is perhaps Canada's most loved children's TV star, Ernie Coombs, best known as Mr. Dress Up, captivated kids for 29 years, over thousands of episodes, now more than two decades after he passed away. A new documentary tells his story and looks at his lasting legacy. His daughter, Kathy LaForte, joins me to talk about the father she shared with generations of Canadian kids and the documentary called Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe. But first, Chris Hadfield really needs no introduction. Fighter, pilot, astronaut, International Space Station, commander, musician, writer, and much more. He's added thriller author to that long list of accomplishments, first with 2021's The Apollo Murders, and with his upcoming novel called The Defector, a dizzying high-stakes game of lies, spies, and a high-level defection that plays across three continents, and the plot is wrapped around a whole lot of places that Hadfield knows well. We talk spies, supersonic fighter jets, space, and the art of the thriller. First up, and this is an exciting one because it's a great book, he is perhaps one of the best-known astronauts ever anywhere, certainly the most famous Canadian one, I'd have to say. Chris Hadfield has long been admired for his many, many abilities. One of them is to make space and his time in space accessible to the rest of us, whether it's through videos explaining how daily routines work on the International Space Station, such as this one. Tech Me from B-Town, Ontario asked... Is it challenging to brush your teeth in space without getting toothpaste up your nose from weightlessness? Well, let's talk about how to brush your teeth in space. Standard toothbrush, nothing magical there. But we got a few different things. We don't have running water. You can't have a tap. You can't have a sink because water would flow everywhere. Uh, and, And so what do you do to wet your toothbrush and where do you spit afterwards? Those are the big questions. Right. And there were many of those videos that he shot on the International Space Station, which were hugely popular, right? Um, His rendition of David Bowie's Space, already recorded in space, has been watched watched countless times around the world. And that, of course, doesn't take away at all from his really remarkable professional accomplishments. He was an Air Command fighter pilot for many, many years. Uh, part of He flew CF-18s from NORAD in 1985. Uh, Colonel Hadfield, as he was at the time, flew the first CF-18 intercept of a Soviet Bear long-range patrol aircraft on the east coast of Canada. As an astronaut, uh, he flew two space shuttle missions, became the first Canadian to work in outer space outside of a spacecraft, the first Canadian to serve as the commander of the International Space Station. It just goes on and on and on. From 2000 to 2003, he was the Director of Operations for NASA at the Yuri Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center in Star City, Russia. And he takes all of those experiences, and he wraps them, and his lifelong love of writing, and he wraps them all together to produce his second novel. The follow-up to the best-selling Apollo Murders published in 2021. The new book is called The Defector, set in 1973 on the eve of the Yom Kippur War in the Middle East. It is, as titled, a dizzying high-stakes game of lies, spies, and a high-level defection that plays across three continents. Much of it is based on real events and real people and certainly places uh, that Chris Hadfield knows well. And Chris Hadfield joins me now to tell me all about it. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Good to talk with you, Ben. Thank you. 
Well, congratulations on your second novel, your second novel of fi- your fictional novel. How long have you been writing fiction? I-, I can't even begin to imagine where you would have found the time uh, until maybe recently. You know, I've always loved writing since I was a kid, and, and I've always sort of written little short stories. I wrote short stories as a teenager and a young adult, but I, I didn't have the confidence or the experience to write fiction as an adult. And I was busy you know, doing the other things I went up to. But the nonfiction books that I've written have done very well. And they gave myself and the publisher confidence that perhaps I could write fiction. So the, the previous book, The Apollo Murders, was an enormous experiment, you know, to, to see if I had the ability. And I think my publishers were holding their breath when they got the first manuscript, like, oh, are we going to have to hire a professional writer to, to come in and clean all this up? But they were much relieved uh, with The Apollo Murders. It needed editing, of course, because I, I wrote way too much. But basically, I, I uh, showed them that I, I had the ability to write. And now with The Defector, uh, I, I'm better at it, just in that I write more efficiently. Uh, I don't write uh, as much unnecessary stuff, and I can get a picture of what's just like anything. You get better at it with a little bit of practice. So it's been a real lovely process of taking something that I've always wanted to do regardless and now put time into it uh, and try and get better at it. And then to have it so well received, the the early reviews for the defector are just great, and and the Apollo murders not only is in I don't know what fifteen languages and being made into a television series, but it's gotten terrific reviews all around the world. So yeah, it's it's really gratifying to um, to be able to tell the story of spaceflight in this new way and to do it you know with with the best of my new and and learned abilities. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoyed about the I mean, just as a thriller, I'll have to tell listeners, it it's very crisply written. And I know I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, sometimes there's there's sort of I always liked spy novels. So, you know, John Lacari is quite drawn out. It's good, but it's quite drawn out. Uh, and then others, you know, the Frederick Forsyth and so on, they kind of boot along. And this one has a really nice pace to it. The chapters are pretty quick, the story all makes sense. I mean, it it really does hold together, and that's no small feat, as you well know. When I was setting out to write thriller fiction. I, I try and be a good student, and I have my whole life. And so I read a lot of, you know, Jean Le Carré and Frederick Forsyth. And actually, it was great. Fred Forsyth wrote a really nice review of the Apollo murders when it came right. out. And and some of the real masters, you look at how uh, the recurring theme books, like John D. McDonald with his Travis McGee series. Yeah, or, I love those. Or yeah. Jonathan Kellerman with his Alex Delaware series, or, or whatever. They're, you know, the, those people who have chosen a character or two and then able to to make thriller fiction uh over multiple different scenes i had no idea how to do that and how is it that they transition from chapter to chapter so that you you go oh i gotta read this next chapter you know how do you do those things how do you it's kind of a learned thing and to make it not go too fast you've got to tell the detail that really makes it rich and interesting but you don't want it to drag on and and so I, I, I've done my best to do that in The Defector, and I'm very happy with it. You know, it's fun when I read it now because, you know, I, I wrote a chapter over a two-day period, whatever, a year and a half ago, and I, I kind of forgot that I wrote it. And now when I read the book, I'm going, wow, hey, this is really cool. I wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> you you know? forget. <laughs> so, so it's very it's very gratifying to be at this stage and to have your reaction uh, that way also. It, it's lovely to hear.
Yeah, you have, so there's some great little lines in it too. What I love reading reading about books about people that you know more about is that they, they drop little hints about things that they think. And there's a great line, and you just sort of alluded to it, called "When an expert is willing to teach you, you listen." And I guess in yeah. this case, when an expert is willing to write for you, you read it, right? Like you you come prepared, even if it's fiction. Well, something I learned a long time ago: everybody is expert on something that you aren't. Everybody, if you're sitting next to a three-year-old, they have had life experiences that you haven't. The hard part is getting to that topic with them and getting them to express it to you clear enough that you can learn something from them. And that's true whether it's your native language or some other language. But I will always give experts time because, because they are the ones who know in detail something that I don't know enough about. And so that applies to me on the flip side also. I've done some things in my life that have made me my little subset of expertise. And so I'm trying to express those ideas as clearly and um, poignantly and efficiently as I can, but also compellingly and as part of a story, not just, you know, charts and graphs, so that the reader is going, huh, I didn't know that. I didn't realize what was going on between Nixon and Kissinger in, in the fall of 73 or Wow, gold in my ear. I didn't realize she was fighting cancer at that time and nobody knew about it and mm-hmm. or or whatever. The the things that that I've learned or the expertise that I have, I think it's more fun for the reader. It's definitely more fun for me as the writer to learn and develop and, and really polish that stuff so that so that it presents the topic as well as I'm capable. Chris, here is uh, is he brings also some super super special talents to the table, and I'm not going to go through them all because you know what they are. Uh, he he's really he's really a people person. He's out there. He shares things with everybody. He has he has a way to make time for all that stuff. He's he's a uniquely talented person on the planet, and now a uniquely talented person off the planet. Chris Hatfield is with us this hour. The book is called The Defector. It's his new book. It's his new novel. It's a Cold War spy thriller, or I guess that's probably the right way to put it if in the simplest of terms. Uh, but part of it, too, just looking at your biography and looking at some of the settings in the book, a lot of the places, I mean, it's not often you pick up a book that's fiction and mentions places like Star City in the former USSR, uh, the Johnson Space Center in Houston. Uh, these are all places that you know. <laughs> these are all things that you've seen. And that really adds an interesting dimension to it. You must have worked hard to try to weave what you know into this story. I would say 90% of the book is real. Like those are real places, real people. Over half the characters of the book are real people. And the places are all, all real. I, I didn't invent any of them. The, the stuff that happens in, in Israel, the air base in Syria, the Ministry of Medium Machine Building yes. in, in just south of the Moscow River in, in, in Moscow, um, and what happens out at the nuclear test range and at Area 51 in the Nevada desert, that's all 100% real. But I've just in, taken the fall of 73, looked at what was going on, and then chose a plot with my characters that could weave all those things together into something that hopefully is so credible that you have to flick to, you know, to the back of the book, to the author's notes, where I explain, hey, this is real. This is real. These are these are real things that actually happen. Semi-Palatinsk out in eastern Kazakhstan, where where the Soviets tested their first nuclear bomb and where so much work has gone on in, in development of nuclear technology. All of that stuff, that that's all real. So it's a huge challenge for me as the writer to, to get all of those real things 
right, to get them correct, to to not put something in there inadvertently or or just because I don't care, you know, that is it is provably or, or palpably false. When I'm sitting in a movie or reading a book and I run across something that I know for a fact to be false or to, to where they've made some mistake, it explodes. You know, right. the whole plot just kind of like falls to the ground. I'm going, well, if, if they didn't get this right, then either they didn't care or or the whole thing is false. And then it's like, ah, I'm sitting in a movie theater and this isn't real. This is all pretend. So I really work hard to make it as absolutely factual as I can so that you as the reader just can't tell which parts are the plot and which parts are things that actually happen. Yeah, I mean, even and I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but you'll find this out pretty quick in the plot. One of the main one of the main plot devices is a true story that I had actually never heard of. I mean, I'm not you know, I I study the news and so on. I had never heard of Viktor Belenko. Uh, and and oh. Japan and I had never heard of it. I know I was you know I was born in 1970, but this is kind of you know the idea of a of a, of a Soviet pilot defecting with a MiG 25 was built around a true story, even though the events in this one are, are entirely different. Yeah, and within a couple of years mm-hmm. of uh, of when I set the book, The Defector, there was a Soviet pilot, as you mentioned, Viktor Balenko, who um, was in, way in the east of Russia, south of Vladivostok, and uh, not too far across the Sea of Japan from Japan itself. And he defected, and uh, a pretty harrowing thing, and and uh, and managed to land it. Uh, and and then the United States and Japan slow rolled the dissection and reassembly of that airplane and sent it back to the Soviets. So so that's a real thing that happened, yes. and it's pretty well documented. And, and so to take that idea and just bump it back to the Yom Kippur War in the fall of 73 and have the same sort of thing happen, but now use it as a surprise uh, as yep. to why and how and what was really going on in the plot. But yeah, wherever I can, of course, I want it to be real or to reflect reality, because then I think it becomes just inherently more compelling. Given all that you've seen over the years and your time in so many different places, you must have had to be careful with not revealing too much as well, being too detailed, because I suspect some many of the things you've seen over your years uh, mightn't be things you can share publicly, even in a fictional setting. Well, sure. Uh, part of that is just personal. You know, you don't want to. I, I know a, a lot of the people, the, the real people, or, or they've passed away since. Part of my philosophy in writing is... I, it shouldn't be my job to make a, a real person look bad. You know, if they are a bad person, they can look bad all on their own. I don't need to, I don't need to help them or exaggerate or, or just tell things out of school. I would much rather that gets genericized. And that's been true in everything that I've written. But the places and the things also, um, some of the stuff I've done, you know, I was NATO top secret when I was a combat fighter pilot mm-hmm. and a test pilot with the Canadian Air Force and U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy. So, you know, n- not everything is is public knowledge, and it shouldn't be. Um, but almost everything uh, that is in there is, is something that has a real grounding in reality. And when you get, you know, t- when the readers get towards the end of the book and the real meat of it all gets revealed, gosh, that's all real. That, and in fact, what's going on there is is really happening now, too. You can call it a historical Cold War spy thriller, but, it, it, you know, history 
I don't know if it repeats itself, but it, but it sure has a resemblance to itself. And a lot of that stuff is going on right now, including the rekindling of the technology that is sort of the crux of, of the motivations in, in the defector. So, yeah, it, it's worth getting as close to the truth as I possibly can, because that, I think, is where the reader is is uh, is going to be unable to, to stop going on to the next chapter and find out what's really going on here. What's the scariest thing you've ever done? What's the most dangerous thing that you've ever done? And why did you do it? Uh, I know what the most dangerous thing is that I've ever done, because uh, NASA does the math. The odds of a catastrophic event during the first five shuttle launches was one in nine. Uh, Not great odds. So it's a really interesting day when you wake up at the Kennedy Space Center and you're going to go to space that day. Chris Hadfield's latest book is called The Defector. Uh, it is a great novel. It comes out in a few weeks, or it comes out in mid-October. I'll, I'll give you the exact date in a bit. Chris, one thing that really stood, stood out to me, because this is a Cold War, as we'll remember from any of us who grew up in that era, uh, you know, the the Soviet Union and the U.S. and their battles uh, over that period of time. There's a great period, of which is also true, which was the Apollo-Soyuz sort of handshake in space that you bring in, which is sort of a symbol of detente. And it feels like we're a long way from that now. And it feels like that permeates the book to the sort of the modern settings between between America and Russia, or at least the West and Russia comes into this book as well, even though it's set, you know, 50 years ago. Well, you know, as well as anyone, Ben, the, the cycles of geopolitics, you know, and Russia, Soviet Union, whatever, it's a thousand year old civilization. And it has had very friendly periods, very enlightened periods. You know, Peter the Great building a a Paris of the North when he created St. Petersburg. And in the 90s and 2000s, after Perestroika, where there was great cooperation and we built the International Space Station together, I helped build the Russian Space Station Mir. Mm -hmm. But just a decade, well, just five years before that, I was a Cold War fighter pilot with an armed CF-18 intercepting armed Soviet bombers who were practicing cruise missile launches on North America. That was my job, defending Canada in the 80s against a very real uh, wartime threat. And, And so it ebbs and flows. The cultures of different country give them different motivations and drives and and a sense of what is okay and what is normal. And and none of that has ended. So to look at um, my own history, both of necessity to enter onto the very edges of armed conflict, as well as to look at a different slight moment of history in my own life where I could cooperate 100% with that same group of people under a different set of circumstances, that has to be reflected in this book as well. And so the way that I do it you know, fall of 73, height of the Cold War, coming up towards the Apollo-Soyuz, as you say, but still very much armed conflict. The way I think that I want people to, to get a sense for the reality of it is through the characters. What are their motivations? What are their limitations? You know, what were they raised with? What are they true to? Why would they do what they're doing next? Nobody is 100% bad or 100% good everybody's got this internal conflict within them and it's our society and our our external sort of values that help us temper our more base nature or maybe our gut instinctive reaction to then behave differently and i want all my characters to be that nuanced and that and that real but also to be doing things because 
that's what this person would do next. And, and that's true of my sort of the lead, you know, bad guy, uh, the, the defector in the book. Mm-hmm. It's true of Svetlana. It's true of, of uh, Kaz. It's true of everybody. And uh, as the writer, <laughs> I'm often just sort of as interested to see what my character would do next as anybody. Okay, these this is the little circumstance I put him into. What what would their next steps be? And then it sometimes that changes the whole direction of the chapter or that part of the book because I have to keep the characters true to their nature and, and not you just can't turn them into a black and white character or the book is going to lose complete validity. You had some interesting. Svetlana has some great lines, and she's a great character. She's she's. And this is sort of this is obviously fictional. She's a Russian cosmonaut, a woman who's walked on the moon. So, and this is not. And I won't give too much more away. But she has a great line about there being too many men in space. And I thought, wow, you know that it feels the book in that sense feels there's a lot of there's a lot of modernity in in this book as well about sort of things that you know just the way things are. But it, that was an interesting line that that she put it. I gather. I mean, you're the author, right? So she said it, but part of you must think it. Well, I, I lived in Star City, Russia for years. I was mm-hmm. NASA's director of operations in Russia. I, I learned to speak the language. I studied Russian for 20 years. Don't get me wrong. I, I absolutely disagree and abhor with what Russia is doing under Putin's criminal leadership, uh, what they're doing in Ukraine right now. It is, it's a travesty of human behavior, but that doesn't suddenly mean that every person who was born in Russia is evil. They they can't all leave. They they don't have the passport or the financial resources. You're kind of stuck with where you are, most people on Earth. And so I think it's important to to portray the characters that way. And also the different nations are at different levels of cultural normality, naturally enough. If you look at the deep south of the United States in 1961. It wasn't perfect then, it isn't perfect now, but it's different for sure. And the norms in Russia in 1973 and even now are quite different than they are, say, in Canada. And so for a a woman leader in the space business, and you've got to remember, the Soviets flew Valentina Tereshkova, the first Mm -hmm. woman in space, back in the mid-60s, you know, way before the Americans ever flew a woman. And then there were other Soviet women flying in space before the Americans ever flew a woman. So, in fact, they led the world in that regard. And, And so my character is sort of somewhat based on that. But just think how frustrating it would be when you are super competent and qualified, but you're still being treated as when a, when a woman showed up at the one of the early Soviet space stations, the crew gave her an apron as a gift to show, you know, that now at last a woman is here and she can clean and cook. Everyone, ha, 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 very funny. But Imagine what that was like for her to not only have to be qualified and competent, but also put up with that type of stupidity and and lingering, judgmental, self-defeating stuff. But that hasn't stopped. You know, we still carry lots of inertia of cultural norms that slowly we try and improve, but, you know, um, we still don't have it right by any means. And so Svetlana is a wonderful character to be able to explore a little bit of that and express it so clearly and look at it through her point of view. And she's not perfect, but she's interesting. And what's fun is when I started writing the Apollo murders where she first appeared, I had no intention of having her as a character. But when I when I was developing and starting to write the story, I realized, hey, this 
character could credibly be a woman because they had flown, uh, they flew a couple of women that this by this period. And so, well, why don't I make it a woman cosmonaut? And then suddenly she really came to life. And I, I think she's super interesting. I'm, I'm researching the, the next book in the series now. And, and we're going to go back to space in the third book. And it's really interesting what Svetlana is going to get up to. You can see in the defector, she got assigned to Apollo Soyuz in the mm-hmm. third seat of the Soyuz. So that's maybe a little hint of what's going to come in the next book. But yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see what Svetlana does next. That's so cool because, of course, she's your character. So you, so you, if you don't know, that's uh, that's even more. Interesting. But she is a. Really... I don't know yet. I'm just setting up the framework. But then yeah. she's going to do the things that 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 she would do, and uh, uh, it's going to surprise me. But it's also giving me a lot of room uh, for things I haven't even considered yet. And the only way to figure out your plot and to get your book written is to actually start writing it. You know, yes. you can't plan the whole book out until you start writing the characters. You, you don't know where it's going to end up. Otherwise, your book's going to be terrible. Everything's going to be predictable and wooden. You've got to let the people be who they are. For me, that was uh, the voyage of a lifetime. It, it was an incredible odyssey. Uh, all eight days up there were uh, just uh, jam-packed with exciting experiences. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about it. It's everything you could ever imagine it to be. And uh, although we had a lot of work to do, we also had a great deal of, uh, of fun. And uh, what can be more fun than sticking your head through one of the windows and just looking at the earth? It's, uh, it's just an incredible sight. Chris Hadfield is with us this hour. His book is called The Defector. It's his latest, his second work of fiction, um, set ostensibly during the 1973 Yom Kippur War, but wraps in a lot of things that, that Chris also knows a, a ton about uh, as well. You know, no space travel, uh, fighter fighter pilots, fighter jets, and so on and so forth. Uh, Chris, I, just it came up today that this is, in 1984 on this day, Mark Garneau became the first Canadian in space. And I just thought, wow, that's what a, what a coincidence. I'm talking to you today. It's amazing how far we've come in the past 39 years as a country. I mean, we'd already been successful, but just reading your book, too, and looking and, and reading through it and thinking about the space program and your inspiration of, 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 you know, the first man on the moon and thinking that it's been 39 years since Canada's first space flight. It's it's huge. And the oldest person in the world right now is a woman who lives in Spain. Uh, I think she was born in San Francisco, but she was born in uh, 1907. So she's 116. But think about that. She was born in 1907. The very first airplane to ever fly in Canada was 1909. So the ability to fly is younger than one lifetime in Canada. All this has happened in one life. People get all impatient, you know. Oh, gosh, everything's moving so slowly. It is moving incredibly fast. And you're right. Mark Garneau first flew in uh, in October of, of 1990 or 1984. 84, yep. And that was, you know, that was super exciting for me because suddenly Canadians could fly in space. But, you know, it, it, that was brand new. He was hired as an astronaut. And less than a year later, there he was on a space shuttle in space, hugely overwhelming. And, and you know, he had a Ph.D. and he was a military officer. But that was a big ask for any human being to try and get that ready that quickly. But now Canadians have done spacewalks. Uh, I've, I've commanded a spaceship and Jeremy Hansen right now is training to go to the moon. He's going to orbit the moon late next year, early 2025. In all of history, only 24 people have ever left Earth orbit. have gone fast enough to, to you know break that speed and go to go to the moon. Every single one of them 
was an American. No, no other country has ever managed that. The very first non-American to ever leave Earth orbit is going to be Jeremy Hansen from Ailsa Craig, Ontario. Think about that when Mark was sitting on the launch pad to ready to launch in 1984, that we are now to the point that uh, what I dreamed about when I was a kid, a Canadian is going to the moon. And probably Josh or Jenny, the, the other two unflown Canadian astronauts, one of them has a real good shot uh, on a subsequent flight walking on the surface of the moon itself. So, yeah, and, and we're just getting started, you know, as the cost of rockets comes down, it's like, you know, when cars renew or airplanes renew or trains renew, it just opens up almost unimaginable possibilities. All that is happening right now. And uh, and Canada is in the thick of it. So, yeah, I, I don't spend a lot of time looking backwards, but I think it is worth honoring Mark. Mark was a role model for me when I was first sent down to the Johnson Space Center. Mark and I went down together as Canada's first two space shuttle mission specialists. And I'm going to see Mark here uh, next week at, at an astronaut reunion where we meet all the current astronauts in Canada and talk about stuff. So, yeah, uh, congratulations to Mark. But congratulations to everybody that's been involved in everything that's happened since October of 1984. Yeah, it was only 11 years later and just about a year after you joined that you were there, too. You I mean, I think it was November 12th, 1995. So we're coming up on another anniversary as well of your first yeah. time in space, which I mean, I was looking back at those pictures today. I, I have to say, I mean, I, I, people knew you, but wow, you were thrilled. I mean, I, I know, and no doubt, no doubt you were thrilled. Well, it, it's it's a bunch of things. It's obviously your, in my case, my childhood dreams coming true, which is thrilling for anybody. It's a huge personal task to try and gain all the skills to be trusted to go do something that's incredibly dangerous and nearly impossible. So there's that great sense of purpose and, and pride and, and, you know, honor that goes with it. And I, I was Canada's first mission specialist. I was mm -hmm. the first Canadian to operate Canada arm first to do a space, you know, all these other firsts. First for the whole 40 million of us. And so there's that as well. So yeah, it it is immensely thrilling. And, you know, people say, oh, we know you a lot better now. You know, I was on the cover of Time magazine as a result of that first flight. So right. that was quite a thrill for a little kid from a, on a farm, you know, where I grew up in Southern Ontario. To me, life should be a thrilling adventure. And you only get one of them. Why, why not? It's like figure skating. Do the compulsory stuff as well as you possibly can. But boy, take advantage of the freestyle. You know, when you get your chance to do that freestyle, you know, give it all that you got. And it, it's amazing what can happen. And the defector, to be honest, to come back to the book, it feels a little bit like that part of your journey. It's another thing that you've got to do that you enjoy doing. And then you've, you know, you put the work in. Uh, you know that writing is, is there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in writing as well. And here it is. The finished product is uh, you must be really happy with 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 the Apollo murders and this one as part of what you're just describing. I guess it's not the compulsories. In some ways, <laughs> you're, you're doing the free skate right now. Well, you end up with both. But I am immensely happy. Yeah, with, with that. It's, you know, I'm doing a lot of other things besides writing books, but um, it takes me about two years to write a book. And how many two-year slices do you get where, where you're, you're trying to do one thing and then once you've done that thing, then you're kind of powerless to whether it's a success or not, because that's going to be up to the judgment of so many people that you've never met. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it's a big roll of the dice uh, where I put everything into it to give it as much chance of succeeding as I can. And, and I'm working on the next book in the series now. And 
I've got to figure out how this is going to work. The the plot twists are, are defeating me at this point, but it's lovely. It's always going in the back of my head. So while I'm dealing with the day's compulsories, I've got that freestyle of, of creativity going on all the time. And I'm listening to what would Kaz say that I should do right now? What would Svetlana advise me of right now? They become as real in my mind as the real people that I deal with. And to me, that is is what makes me joyful is I'm involved in this creative process based on a lifetime of work and observation that allows me to share my experiences in a in a kind of a real different and accessible way with so many other people. And when I'm traveling now and someone walks up to me and they go, hey, you don't know who I am, but man, I just read your book. I love that book and I love what Kaz is up to and and uh, I can't wait to read your next book. Gosh, what a... What a, a lucky and lovely thing to be able to run into, you know, uh, at this stage of my life. And and I'm just getting going on uh, uh, on this series of books. So, yeah, it, it, how could that not be fun? Oh, I look forward to number three. Uh, Chris Hadfield, thank you so much for sharing your experience with this with me. The book that is called The Defector, it's out. The publication date is October 17th. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Ben. Uh, real, real joy to talk with you. And I hope everybody enjoys The Defector. <laughs> We're going to start with something a little bit different. This is not uh, make-believe, unfortunately. Uh, the federal government is putting in new guidelines to try to cut back on the use of outside consultants as part of a move to try to cut about $15 billion from existing spending plans. Now, check this out. Federal spending on outsourcing has increased or increased to 146 billion dollars last year. That's 74% higher than when the Liberals promised in 2015 to cut back on the use of external consultants. So it's just growing. So the Treasury Board is releasing a new manager's guide for public servants. They're responsible, of course, for signing off on billions of dollars in outsourcing and procurement each year. And it comes on the heels of a number of revelations in the media surrounding outsourcing itself and IT contracts um, in particular, if you remember back to the Phoenix payroll system disaster, uh, that was sort of the template for a bad IT contract. It was put into place, signed by the previous Harper government, obviously. It hasn't gotten any better in the last eight years. Uh, here are some examples. In 2020, the Canada Border Services Agency signed a $480,000 contract with a small information technology consultancy. That contract was amended three times and ended up costing $1.3 million. So from $480,000 to $1.3 3 million. A contract from Employment and Social Development Canada was signed at $2.6 million late in 2020. It was later revised to $7.5 million, again, a three-fold increase. Um, and an analysis of five years of contracts by the Investigative Journalism Foundation found that from the disastrous Phoenix pay system, as I mentioned, uh, to the Arrive Can app, outsourced IT contracts issued by the federal government have some of the highest cost overruns of any other service, of any other service. Since 2017, they've awarded 17,100 contracts for IT and telecom consulting. Almost half of them were amended with a higher cost, on average costing 134% more than the original agreed upon price. Why is that? How can they not get this right? If you get an estimate for something done in the house, you know what? Chances are, hopefully, it'll cost something like what you've been promised, not 134% more. Roberto Rocha is a reporter with the Investigative Journalism Foundation who dug in to this story, and he joins me now. Roberto, thank you. Hey, nice to be here. This is a, an ever an evergreen topic uh, when it comes to the federal government. In fact, most governments for that matter, but the federal government in this case specifically and their IT contracts. 
I think most of us have known this is a long-standing and ongoing issue for the government, but just how big a problem is it? It seems to be a chronic problem. Uh, what we set out to do is instead of reporting on you know this one contract that went over budget and this other one that went before parliamentary committee, we wanted to see you know just how widespread is this problem. So we took five years of contract data that the government has been putting online, uh, fairly consistently since 2017, and try to measure like what is the average increase in IT consulting contracts compared to all other types of services. And it shows certainly that these tend to be the most over budget uh, contracts out there. Yeah, I mean, you found uh, a, a a huge proportion of them are over budget by quite a bit and in proportion to other contracts as well. So IT appears to be sort of a world of a world of hurt all on its own. It is, but it's also important to know, and this is what experts I interviewed wanted to make very clear, is that this isn't isolated to a Canadian government or even government in general. Even mm-hmm. in the public sector, uh, IT projects usually tend to fail. Depending on which research firm you believe, it can go up to 70% of IT uh, projects fail in some way or another, whether they go over budget, they didn't meet the, the, the requirements, it wasn't planned out well enough. The reason we care about, you know, when it happens in the government, because it's public money. So the scrutiny there should be, you know, should be a little bit stronger. Yeah. I mean, I think I think what you what you ended up finding was just that the, the cost overruns for IT contracts tend to be both more prevalent by a pretty significant amount. I mean, I think it was uh, far more just 14 percent for contracts of all other services and about half of all or maybe even more of all IT contracts uh, end up end up higher than they're supposed to be. Um, and, that, and that and that costs a lot of money. I guess part of the issue here is this this ongoing problem of being able to correctly anticipate what an IT project is going to cost. Right. I mean, I think there's lots of different variances that come in and obviously amongst across even just in government across many departments and agencies so so this is not a specific agency that has more problems than others it seems to be a real problem just understanding what the scope of an it project should look like and cost yeah that seems to be one of the main issues here is that uh one um the public service just doesn't have the latest and greatest you know expertise in technology right uh, leading the people who know leading edge or really skilled at this stuff uh, most of them don't want to work for government. They're going to work for, you know, the big consultancy firms where they can make a lot more money. So there isn't that uh, in-house expertise in technology in government, and they have to rely on these outside um, consultants. As a result of that, uh, government doesn't always know what it needs. It doesn't know what's out there. It doesn't know how to really spell out its requirements very well to these consultancy firms. And that en- ends up in, you know, contracts being um, have to be amended. Oh, this isn't what we asked for. This isn't what we wanted. Uh, can you please add this other feature? And it can snowball into some very expensive um, projects. Yeah, you did mention that part of this too is just the nature of a technology project. If you if you contract out for you know office furniture, it shows up and that's it, right? But with tech projects like other some other things, uh, they're ongoing. They're living projects, so there's updates and security, and there's all sorts of things that can happen after the fact too that can cause contracts to end up going significantly over budget as well. It's not just sort of uh, either malfeasance or, or incompetence, right? There's other things that go on with these contracts. Oh, absolutely. That's really important to keep in mind is that tech is never done. It's constantly changing, especially today. It's going so fast. I I heard this recently. I went to a a networking event for a data science uh, specialist, and they said that when you learn a skill, 
on average, it's it's obsolete in two, in two years' time, a two years' uh, time frame. So even if you go to school to learn about computer science, by the time you graduate, what you learn might already be outdated. It's insane how quickly this this it's, it's changing. So software needs to be updated. Uh, new tools, new better tools need to be, you know, adopted. If we expect the government to, you know, work as seamlessly and digitally, uh, like perfectly, like banks, like utilities, like on our phones, right? Everything's so digitized. Then government does have to keep uh, um, adopting these new tools. Right. And I guess, I mean, the, the, the problem here is that one, when government does its thing its way, I mean, I've, I've done this, I've actually been involved in this. It's very slow. It's very slow. And unfortunately, when it, when it wants to do something fast, it pays through the nose through it for it. And I think that's what we're kind of seeing here. It's either so slow that what they're buying becomes obsolete and overpriced and it's too, you know, the whole project becomes a bit of a, a white elephant. Or if they go really quickly, as we saw, say, with, with the ArriveCan app, which had its own problems, then other things happen. So they're, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place when it comes to IT. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Another important um, thing to consider here is that Government is in is has a lot of pressure to save money, right? It's public money, so uh, in, internally they have this pressure to underestimate the true cost of a project so they can get the funds approved either internally or by the treasury board. Uh, so the original contract that they sign is often never realistic. And on the flip side, vendors also know this; they want to win a bid. So they might lowball the true cost of a project just to get that contract approved, and then they will add in the extras later. Uh, Roberto, when you spoke to, I mean, you spoke to a lot of really interesting people for this article who know their stuff. What did they say a solution might look like here? It's as varied as uh, the people you ask, right? Uh, there's all sorts of different uh, solutions proposed forward. Depends who you ask. Uh, it's a complicated issue. There's no uh, single fix. But uh, one thing that came up over and over again when I talked to folks is there should be better project management uh, know-how within government. Procurement officers should be better trained on how to draw up a smart contract that's beneficial for both sides, both the vendor and and the government. There should be stipulations in there that some liability should fall on the vendor as well uh, if they don't deliver what they're asked for, which would force vendors to be more demanding about, all right, give us exactly what we need. Let's talk this through well. Let's not just jump into this project without much of a, a goal in mind. There's also the idea that more of the actual users of the technology within the government the end users, will yeah. be part of the discussions around these contracts, right? Often it's just engineers and like procurement people who are offering these contracts, but they're not the ones who are using it. They're not the frontline workers, you know, on payroll, on HR, let's say, if we're talking about the Phoenix system. So a lot of times these these, these software contracts get done. Here's the product you asked for. The people who actually use it start using it and say, like, this is useless to us. This does not help at all. You have to redo this from scratch. So more participation from, from the actual stakeholders. And yeah, the, the, main, yeah. The, the main solutions. One of the things you pointed out too, and, and this is a problem I think is a li- that's a little harder to solve. You know, and our ex- our conversation is a perfect example. Is there is a lot of pressure on uh, governments in general to to offsource the risk here, so that if something goes terribly wrong, they can blame the vendor, right? And and we don't really can't really afford the in house expertise on this a lot of this stuff anymore. So you outsource outsource these projects uh, often to to middle people who then 
you know, find vendors, which in of itself is not a system that works particularly well. Uh, but we do offload the risk. And I think oftentimes government like that, that buffer. So if something goes wrong, they could just point the finger and go, they told us it would work and it doesn't. And it's not our fault. And we kind of have to get rid of that mentality, too, to some extent. Yeah, I think the fear of failure, the fear of embarrassment, the fear of, you know, uh, of, of being punished for uh, when something goes wrong uh, is probably a big hindrance, too. You know, they're in Silicon Valley and a lot of like tech uh, firms. They believe, you know, the failure is a good teacher. They should you know, move fast and break things. There's debate about how good that is for socially. Right. But in, in government, it's a lot more conservative about, you know, uh, accepting failure. Did you hear anything about the whole, I mean, back to the sort of middle person, because this is one, something that's come up in, in an article that sort of came out about the same time as yours did about these IT contracts being given out to third parties who don't actually do any IT work themselves. They find other people to do it and so on. So they, they sort of act as middle people and they take a cut of the contract, which would invariably, I think, drive up the price. Is that part of the issue, too? is the procurement process is so complicated that it kind of it, it kind of cuts out a lot. You kind of have to know how to do the procurement, uh, you know, get the contract in the first place um, is as much of a challenge as the work itself. And sometimes the whole system is a little bit broken along that sense. If, if it's so complicated just to apply for the contract, chances are you probably aren't finding the best people to do the contract. And you're bringing in a lot of people whose sole expertise is, is getting the getting the contract, getting the gig. Yeah, and it's very hard to track to track that to trace where the the work is actually being done, uh, because once you sign the contract, there's a, some so there's some confidentiality, and, uh, and you don't know what work's being subcontracted to, right? We had we we learned this about ArriveCan because there were you know um, investigations on it, but the people who were hired to do ArriveCan didn't hardly did any work on it themselves. They just subcontracted it to a bunch of other uh, of other shops. Uh, so there's a lot of opacity and um, and difficulty in connecting the dots here. Yeah. Uh, well, Roberto, great work. Uh, and, and I'm sure this is a subject that's not going to go away. Hopefully some of these changes uh, do do at least make it a little more streamlined because it feels like it feels like we've been talking about this for, for a very, very long time. And yet it persists. Thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You know, if you're a kid of a certain age, if you're a person of a certain age, of a certain vintage in this country, that song, that theme song, that piano will immediately conjure up some very vivid images, uh, a flood of childhood memories, to be honest. Casey and Finnegan, the treehouse, the tickle trunk, and of course, Ernie Coombs, who we better know as Mr. Dressup. Um, he had a manner about him, a gentleness about him, uh, and an optimism about him that carried the show across 29 years and 4,000 episodes. It became a fixture in the lives of many, many, many Canadian kids, including myself, an avid watcher. We didn't have cable when I was young. So The Friendly Giant, Mr. Dress Up, that was kind of Sesame Street. Those were my shows. And Mr. Dress Up was certainly one of them. Uh, if not, in my case, if not very good at ever recreating the crafts or the drawings that he seemed to be able to do with such incredible ease, magically makes stuff, whether it be those sort of puppets or the drawings, it was just all the cutouts. It was just all pretty remarkable. To me, it was magic, but it was more than that. It was sort of, it was about Casey and Finnegan. It was about the little things, the little conflicts that they would talk about. It was a show for kids. And in many ways, Casey was the kid on the show. 
Um, and, and, you know, I, I hadn't thought about Mr. Dress Up a whole lot. It comes up in conversations every now and then. But the life and legacy of Ernie Coombs extends far beyond the sets where he made that effort, effortless looking TV magic for so many decades. The story is told in a new doc called Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe. It premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival last month, winning the People's Choice Award for Documentaries. Have a listen. Oh, here you are. You're here and we're here. I've got a good bat costume here to show you. Didn't matter what race you were, what color you were, what religion you were, what language you spoke. You watched Mr. Dress Up. Ernie Coombs, Mr. Dress Up. I mean, he was just so kind and gentle. Ernie never forgot a child within him. And that informs everything that he does with children. When you tell people that Fred Rogers and Ernie Coombs came to Canada together, most people don't even realize that they were very close friends. 4,000 episodes, 30 years. There are not that many shows that last that long. Tell us what the secret is to 30 years on the air. I'm a, a child at heart. It's all doing things that I always liked to do when I was a kid. It's a remarkable documentary that you learned so much about it and that relationship between fred rogers mr rogers and ernie coombs mr dress up is one of the one of the more interesting parts of it but there are so many other moments in this that if you're a mr dress up fan or he touched your life as a child that you learn about and who better to talk about this than ernie's daughter kathy lafort joins me now with more kathy thank you so much my pleasure my pleasure happy to talk to you today i mean i'm i'm you know uh, born in 1970 so smack dab in the Mr. Dress-Up generation. Um, what a great documentary. Uh, what was it like for you to, to sit down and watch it? Because it's 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 both very inform informative and also it, there's parts of it that are very bittersweet too. You're absolutely right. I have had the opportunity to watch the documentary twice now. The first time was at TIFF uh, during the world premiere, which was, I, I have to tell you, completely overwhelming. Um, we had family and friends there. I had an opportunity to see folks who worked on the show that I hadn't seen in many, many years, not to mention uh, some Canadian celebrities, you know, so I was a little starstruck, I'll have to say. Um, that was quite an experience. Um, then last Saturday, I had the opportunity to see it again in a more intimate setting, still on the large screen, but uh, with folks in attendance who were friends, family, friends of the show, uh, we had a wonderful Q&A and it was, um, it was a really, really emotional experience the second time. I think each time I see it, I'm, I'm taking more and more away from it. Uh, what people will find, as you say, it, it is uh, informative, it is emotional, uh, but I think it's going to put us all in touch with um, that nostalgic moment from our childhood. Everybody has their, their own you know, personal Mr. Dress-Up memory. Oh, many, many. Um, in my case, I mean, we didn't have we didn't have cable, so for me, it was sort of, you know, the CBC, the CBC Kids TV, and Mr. Dress-Up specifically were sort of the world that I knew. So it was, um, yeah. I mean, it, it, what's interesting about it as I was watching the documentary, I felt like so many of us, you know, for us, sort of Mr. Dress-Up was frozen in time. He was part of a certain stage of our lives, and I don't know if I'd asked as many questions about someone I had spent so much time with uh, indirectly. Uh, and, and I learned so much from the documentary about his past, about where he grew up, about you, about your mom, um, about Fred Rogers, and and the impact that he had had. There's just so much to your dad's life that uh, that was bigger than that set 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm sure that people will learn kind of the uh, serendipitous path that brought him to Canada and to be Mr. Dressup. And boy, are we all grateful uh, for every step of that journey and, and him ending up where he did. Um, but yeah, there are just, there are so many little uh, nuances there that, that uh, I think people will be surprised to hear. Yeah, the Fred Rogers one was interesting too, because I don't think I even, I, I think I was aware of the connection, but I don't think I was aware of how the connection had worked, but how uh, Fred Rogers had been brought to the CBC and just how much he admired your father and and vice versa. Absolutely. I, I think dad really considered Fred a mentor. Um, I know he shared uh, many times how uh, Fred really impacted um dad's understanding of how to relate and communicate with kids. Um, and, you know, and I'll add to that too. I, I know the relationship with Fred was important, but my mother was uh, an early childhood education professional. Mm -hmm. uh, so she brought a lot to the table as well uh, in terms of, of that understanding. But that journey early on was, was very interesting um, you know, we, we kind of find out the steps uh, that led to the show finally being called Mr. Dress Up and centering around dad and the puppets, um, which I think is a, a really interesting story. It is because Judith Lawrence, the puppeteer as well for Casey and Finnegan, who'd made those puppets, she had her own journey. And I don't think any of us watching had understood the role that your mom had played, the role that uh, Fred Rogers had played, and obviously the role that, that, that Judith Lawrence played, this, this incredible role on that show. Um, even just creating Casey, as we, as we now know, who we still debate whether, whether Casey's a boy or a girl. Um, <laughs> but just the, the incredible uh, collective that came together to make your dad's show happen. Right. And, and what a foundation they laid as well, because, you know, uh, there is our generation, which is familiar with Casey and Finnegan. And then there were a whole new generation of puppets, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, my kids who are now in their thirties and older, uh, grew up with the second generation of puppets, if you will. Uh, but I think that same, uh, ethos, um, and, uh, commitment to just that slow, simple, um, delivery of, the show stayed true from, you know, the early days right through uh, until the last show, um, which was uh, 1996, I believe the last yes. time it, it was uh, taped. Yeah, I was just reading. It, it's featured in the documentary, actually, that last show as well. And, and just the longevity of it, because you watch your dad change, right? Like you watch Mr. Dress Up grow, become older kind of through the years. But I mean, to be honest, it's much the same as my parents were, had grown older, right? It, it's, it's an interesting, you know, he was like an uncle to many of us, I think. Yes, yes. And that kind of, you know, that kind of... Uh... Uh, era where he was more a father figure and then as the, as the gray hair appeared uh he became more that that grandfatherly figure um and in real life he became a grandpa as well so mm -hmm. um you know there there was there was that journey what was it like i mean this is a question i know you get all the time but what was it like to have mr dress up as a father because it comes up in the documentary too and and i think uh, one never knows with, with people who are who, who have the stresses and the demands of, of a job like your dad did, what it's like to bring that home. And it seems like he was as affable and as kind and as cool off screen as he was on screen. Uh, absolutely. I can attest to that. He was the same person always. Um, he was witty. Uh, he was creative. 
Um, and growing up, we, I think we had some kind of inkling that, you know, things were special and things were different and we truly were blessed. We, we got to travel a lot with dad when we were kids, which was wonderful. Um, but, you know, in talking to friends uh, since, you know, the documentary uh, has been available for them to see it, they said, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to see him as Mr. Dress Up, but he was always just Kathy's dad. Right. Um, and, you know, there was that, that um, kind of circumstance where he, as I said, he was no different at home than he was on the show. And the same thing as, as a grandpa. Well, my kids called him Grampy. That was his choice uh, to be called Grampy. And, um, you know, it, it was the same there. Uh, you often saw him doing uh, very Mr. Dress Up like things, you know, with the kids. We There was always, um, you know, creativity going on. Dad, you know, um, entertained the kids while they were making up plays and, and uh, kind of participated in, in things like that and um, did lots of drawing. I can remember specifically um, the kids uh, having bedtime stories, but they would be stories that the kids were making up and dad was illustrating as they were going. So, um, you know, and that, that was very much like what he was doing with his uh, television audience. Too. I was going to say, it all sounds very familiar. <laughs> To, to me as well. It was interesting to watch some of the different ways that Ernie's described by, by Mr. Dressup's described by so many different people. There was a certain authenticity and genuineness that he brought to the screen that I don't think you can, you can't make up. Like that was not an act, right? And that, I think that's what made it so successful. Uh, absolutely. And I think there are some moments in the documentary where you kind of get to look behind the curtain a little bit uh, and see, you know, how he was with his peers on the road uh, with, you know, um, his colleagues and uh, it, all throughout all of it, um, you really get that sense that he was that kind of gentle, kind person. You know, he uh, will relate the story about um you know, taking from his mother, who was one of the kindest uh, people you could ever meet, was was that sense of, of having a positive outlook on everything, um, you know, and, and he really took that to heart. That was something that was imparted uh, in us as children as well, that there's there's always good in everything, in every person, in every situation, um, you know, be kind to people, be kind to the environment, be kind to animals, that, that was all um, part of who he was. So, you know, what we saw um, as a television audience um, in that uh, communication of, of um, you know, kindness and goodness was, was really essentially the person he was. And, and you brought this up earlier because your mom, of course, uh, started a daycare center, uh, the Butternut Daycare Center, and, and, and was a, a child, an early childhood educator. One can never look past the fact that, that Mr. Dress Up was both an educational show, it was an inclusive show. I mean, there was a lot going on, despite despite the simplicity of it. There was a lot of complexity around it as well in terms of what it was delivering to its audience. Yeah, that's true. It was never really didactic, though. You, right, no. you, you were learning without uh, without kind of it was kind of more an absorbing rather than a, a, um, a learning experience per se. But what I want to uh, say is that, you know, 
when they were doing um, crafts on the show um, or or discussing any you know any other subjects, it was all always with um, a mindset of inclusivity. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about we weren't really sure if Casey was a girl or a boy, right? You know, and and that was forty years ago. So how much ahead of their time were they um, with that as well? You know, making sure that there were no um, illusions to roles in terms of gender, you know, women did this and men did this. You often yeah. saw Mr. Dressup sewing a button on his clothes or, um, you know, uh, um, helping somebody else do uh, a task. There was no illusion ever to um, to kind of uh, roles and, and gender that yeah. way. So, and the crafts, the crafts uh, were all very accessible too. They were all in stuff you had around the house, right? I, mis- I suspect you never threw anything away at home, but they were all things that <laughs> I you still don't. Had... <laughs> <laughs> so, I was going to ask, you must have never thrown away a toilet paper uh, roll holder or any of those things, paper towel roll holder ever. Exactly. In, in, <laughs> or a bottle cap. Uh, do you think, what would you like the audience to take away from this? Because there are many layers to this. I can't imagine it was an easy thing because you do talk about the loss of your mom. You talk about your father's death as well in 2001. Uh, you know, this is this there. There are some tough moments in, in this documentary as well. Some very real moments for, for you and your family, perhaps more so for the two you and your brother than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very true. But, you know, that's true of everybody's lives. Um, so, you know, we all have blessed moments and, and tragic moments and, and uh, we, we were no different as a family. Um, what, what I really hope people can take away when they watch the documentary is um, just that connection uh, to that, that nostalgia, that kindness. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people would agree with me in that we are missing a bit of that in our lives uh, these days. And um, in watching the documentary, for me, it was a sense of, of uh, a family, of coming home, you know, kind of like a warm a warm hug. And I, I really hope that's that's what people get from it, that it puts them back in touch um, with, you know, what that felt like as a child. And, and you know, probably um, what they are still carrying um, with them today. Uh, I think that... Uh, we can all channel a little Mr. Dress Up every day, couldn't we? Oh, we certainly could. Do you think he would have liked it? I think he would be very proud. I think he'd be very humbled. Uh, that's just the kind of guy he was. Um, but I think he, uh, I, I really wish Rob McCallum, the director, had the opportunity to meet Dad. I think they would have been fast friends. And I think Dad would really be proud of the integrity um, and the the way that all of the subjects, you know, even those really delicate ones uh, are, are treated in in the program. In a dress-upian kind of way, I'd have to say. It's the, right. uh, with honesty and, and a certain gentleness, I'd say. Absolutely. Well, Kathy, I really appreciate your time. I, I look forward to hearing what you think when you watch the movie yet again. I've seen it. It's, I highly recommend it. Mr. Dress-up, the magic of make-believe. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much for the chance to talk to you today. And of course, uh, you know, this time of year always brings thoughts of pumpkins. Uh, My next guest, though, grows an entirely different kind of pumpkin, a gargantuan gourd, to put it mildly, nicknamed Mama. He's grown them for a while, but this one 
This one has won the taken the prize, nicknamed Mama. Uh, I will ask why. In, grown in Richmond, BC, a giant and more than twenty two hundred pounds. Can you imagine a thousand kilos? Um, has won Dave Chan first place in the U.S. National Pumpkin Weigh Off. Uh, competition in Wheatland, California. That happened on Saturday. That is the continent's, this continent's most prestigious pumpkin weighing contest. And this is the first time that a Canadian has won. And it comes with a great belt and everything. Now, Dave and his and his family are still out there with two pumpkins, believe it or not, I believe, uh, on this sort of road trip that they've been on for a while now after leaving the lower mainland to head south uh, towards California at a few different contests, and he joins me now from somewhere in Napa, I was told, Dave, somewhere in Napa. <laughs> Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for your time tonight. Wow, congratulations. I saw the pictures. I saw the belt. I saw Mama. That was a, that was a big deal. Congratulations on your win. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was an amazing, uh, you know, alignment of the stars, uh, you know, quite often there's a bigger pumpkin at this way off, but uh, uh, they didn't materialize, and mine was the biggest. Uh, what can I say? I'm, I'm thrilled. No doubt. Uh, 2,200 pounds sounds pretty big to me. I mean, I saw some pictures of it. I saw, I mean, it, it is massive. It is just a, a massive, massive pumpkin. The pumpkin is uh, six feet wide, exactly, 72 inches wide, and 42 inches three and a half feet high. Oh, wow. I mean, when you walk into my greenhouse, it has presence. Trust me. It's, I, I, I laugh every time I walk in there. It's so big. And, and I'm very used to big pumpkins, right? So what can I say? It grew bigger than the other ones, and it's just been a lot of fun. Yeah, tell me a bit because I we we talked about this in the past um, on the show, and I gather that you get a sort of there's there's a lot of science here. This isn't just sort of you know this isn't the magic bee jack and the beanstalk kind of stuff. This is this is you you do this. There's a way of doing this to try to get the biggest pumpkin possible, and you also can kind of chart its growth. And there you have it. Yeah, correct. Uh, you know we're in. In Napa, uh, the the township of Napa right now, waiting to take the second pumpkin to Half Moon Bay, California, for the second largest uh, uh, pumpkin way off in the world. It also has $50,000 prize money. And and, uh, when they get home, uh, my wife and I, my wife Janet and I were just talking about how much work we have to do, even though the pumpkins are grown and finished and everything else. But in order to keep the soil healthy, we remove all the vines, which have had lots of insecticides and fungicides and the diseases of powdery mildew and insects, aphids and such, growing on them. So we pull them all out and take them down to the garbage dump to get them recycled to the green bins, right? Right. And um, and then we plant winter rye, which is the only cover crop that grows all winter in Vancouver. And and that's one because if I look at Mama, and I was going to ask you how you how you came up with the name because of course that jumps off the page when you see it. You have this <laughs> massive pumpkin name. Where did you come up with the name, Dave? Well, when when I'm in competition mode, we usually grow three pumpkins. 
And mm-hmm. uh, just for the lack of any um, uh, ingenuity, we we've named them the uh, uh, after the Goldilocks and the three bears. So it's really Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and Baby Bear. And yeah, there you so, have it. Yeah. Uh, when they're about half grown, this is when we start naming them. So the biggest one is Papa, and the middle is Mama, and and the smallest is Baby. Well. Papa grew very quickly in the beginning and slowed down a little bit, and then Mama took off. So when we named them, Papa was about 200 pounds ahead of Mama, and by the time we picked it on September 24th, it was 400 pounds heavier than Papa. And uh, we just sort of keep the the name rather than change yeah. the order uh, according to size. Right, Mama came came from behind to win the race. How, yeah, how did yeah, you? Yeah. yeah, how do you? How do you set out to grow a two thousand twenty two hundred pound pumpkin? Because I, I gather there's a, a choice of seed involved. You mentioned a bit about making sure the soil is right. It has to be. It's very specific to allow the best conditions for for a pumpkin to thrive over a relatively short period of time. If you think about it, yes, uh, I mean the pumpkin took one hundred eleven days itself to grow from a pea-sized uh, flower to 2,212 pounds. But this fall rye, which grows through the winter, about the middle of March, uh, towards the end of March, it's about two feet high, and uh, we cultivate that into the soil. We call it green manure. And so when the ryegrass breaks down, uh, it just puts goodness back into the soil, plus... The roots itself uh, harbor lots of fungi, which one of the main ones is mycorrhiza, and that's sort of the up-and-coming hormone, if you will, of plant growing. And every plant can benefit by using mycorrhiza. And so when we plan to come down to California, we research the seeds, we decided that we were going to spend more money than we normally would, spend more time than we normally would, but really get into competition mode. And if this things didn't work out, we were going to come down to visit and rub shoulders with uh, all the big boys down here uh, and their pumpkins. Well, you're one of the big boys now, Dave. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I, it must be remarkable because just doing the math – uh, Mama must have been growing about 50 pounds a day at one point, if I'm not mistaken. In in some days, uh, it's quite normal for one of these in their peak growth times to grow 50 pounds a day. So, you know, quite often you'll get a 10 or 12 or 14 day growth spurt of 50 pounds a day. Well, that's five, six, seven hundred pounds just, you know, in that period of time. And uh, two years ago, when I broke the BC record with a 1,911-pound pumpkin, uh, we uh, the pumpkin grew 71 pounds in one day. We oh, measured wow. that three times, and uh, we got the same measurement. And I just said to my wife, "If it's bigger tomorrow, we'll know that we have, you know, confirmed that it in fact grew." that big and and it did it put on another 36 pounds the next day so over 100 pounds in two days uh which gives you that 50 pound average but 
that is not uncommon with these things. And basically, when you go out in the morning and have a look at it, you can visibly see that it's bigger, which brings a smile to your face, of course. No doubt. I was also watching the very delicate process because even though these this this these pumpkins are massive, they're fragile to some extent too. And you needed to get this twenty two hundred pound pumpkin onto a flatbed, along with another one, by the way, onto a flatbed and get it to California. And that in of itself must have been a pretty nerve wracking experience because a it's a long drive and b Mama was in big good shape, but that doesn't always last. You know, uh, I've transported enough pumpkins uh, now that I don't really worry about cracking or whatever because uh, it's just never happened for me. Uh, I usually go to Home Depot and buy a sheet of two-inch styrofoam, the cheapest one that you can uh, purchase just because it tends to be a bit softer. So we'll put a sheet of uh, two-inch styrofoam right on the deck of the flatbed and put the pumpkin right on top of that. And uh, I've just never had any problems. Other growers tend to protect their uh, pumpkins when they're traveling with tarps and covers and blankets and whatever. Uh, we travel naked, uh, We other than the straps holding it down. And believe it or not, we went through torrential downpours in Oregon and and Washington. Um, and we arrived in Sacramento with not a scratch or a mark on the pumpkin skin itself. Uh, yeah, no, the, it, the, the skin is incredibly tough. It must you must have gotten a few uh, curious looks as you went by with the, with your with your precious cargo, considering that it's not covered up. People can see exactly what you're transporting. Exactly, and lots of great looks and honks and thumbs up. And every time we stopped, a group of people would gather uh, around to have a look. And that's one of the great things about the hobby. You know, uh, you meet people. People are always happy. Um, they're always questioning you, and, and uh, people come through the patch and want to take pictures with the pumpkin. So we met a lot of lot of people just growing pumpkins. It, uh, it's quite a social thing because people, uh, ju- they just love them. <laughs> yeah. What can I say? David, I mean, you, you were, a, I gather this is sort of a retirement thing that you did because you were a dentist, right? In, 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 as a profession, is that, is that right? And then you got in, you and, and your wife yes, too. And I your retired wife too. 13 years ago. Yes. And, and, and your Janet too, obviously you need to, this have, would have to be a couple's venture, I would think. You couldn't just do this solo. And so you're both sort of a, a big into this and it must be a great, as you mentioned, it's a great way to meet people and do stuff. Yes. And uh, Granite, uh, Janet, sorry, has a gardening background anyhow. She is a master gardener, which is a course that's given by uh, some experts. And uh, it's not a degree or anything, but it's a very uh, comprehensive course. So she does mostly the flowers around our our house. And mm-hmm. uh, and I do the the vegetables and the pumpkins. But she helps a lot as well. And, uh, yes, I understand you're going to take your winnings. So I think it was $9 a pound, which is about $27,000 Canadian. I hear you're going somewhere really nice with this. And there's some pumpkin pump. There's a pumpkin involved pumpkin segment of the trip of the trip as well. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, 
I, I said to my wife, Janet, how would you like to go to Italy? And uh, she said, oh, that'd be great. We have been to Italy before. But I said, can you give me one day at a pumpkin uh, patch in Italy? And she goes, no, 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 no more pumpkins, right? And uh, the largest pumpkin in the world, uh, which is 2,702 pounds, was grown in Tuscany, in the middle of Tuscany in Italy. So, you know, Tuscany is a beautiful spot. She agreed to spend a week in Tuscany and visit Stefano for a day, which would be great. Now, just this year, the biggest pumpkin in the world was also grown in Italy, uh, and it's 2,600-some-odd pounds, but near Lake Como. And if anybody knows where that is, another beautiful spot it is well you know Dave, uh, i I think i think if you convince janet that both these places are really awesome to see on their own you might be able to sneak the pumpkin days in maybe (laughs) maybe i don't know yes (laughs) yeah she's uh yeah yeah it's all about compromising it's all about compromising the the seed that i grew and this is kind of uh just exemplifies how it's kind of a worldwide hobby uh the seed i grew is from the champion grower in Spain. Ah. So that was going to be the third uh, week of our holidays to visit. Uh, <laughs> um, um, Ruben is his name. And as it turns out, Ruben came to California to visit other pumpkin growers and to attend the uh, way off in Half Moon Bay. Of course, so not with a pumpkin, but just to see his buddies there so you'll meet him so, you'll probably meet him coming up i, I we will yes for sure okay. and now, uh yeah i was gonna ask go you ahead. what you're gonna you're gonna bring the pumpkins back is that right so if, if anyone who's in and around richmond wants to come and have a look at, at at this award winner this prize winner mama they could actually see it at your place absolutely yes the the smaller one baby bear which i'm taking to the half moon bay way off I'm bringing it home, and I, I have it sold for a considerable amount of money, and that'll help pay for the fertilizer. And Big Mama will be on our driveway and uh, for anybody to come and see. So, That's awesome. Uh, yes. And uh, I don't I gather, know. Yeah. Do you want to give the address over the phone well, or the radio? Probably, or, probably, I'll let people figure it out, I think, just in case. Just okay. in case. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. David Chad, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, my best to your wife, and uh, I hope you work out your Italy itinerary together. <laughs> and good luck in Half Moon Bay. It should be awesome to see what happen, happens this week, and maybe you can make it two in a row. <laughs> Thank you very much. Back to the Thanksgiving theme uh, for tonight. Uh, today, the industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, you know, the, the federal government made this promise about sort of getting on the case of grocery chains to bring down the price of food, of some food at least, ahead of Thanksgiving. And of course, because today is, you know, we're, we're there essentially, uh, they had to provide an update. So here's what, uh, here's what he had to say. Canadians are, are frustrated uh, and they expect bold and decisive actions 
from each and every one of us. Uh, this is not just us as a government, but I would say it's us as Canadians where we need to tackle these things. And I think that we need to take, uh, like I say, bold and decisive action. That's certainly what we intend to do. Yeah, every time I hear a, hear a politician say bold and incisive, you always know that they're not whatever's coming next is not going to be particularly uh, concise. It's always going to be a bit opaque. Bold and concise. It's, it's like if you hear a politician say, let me be clear, you know what's coming after that, right? Not much. Not much. Anyway, I mean, this is this is a tall order, needless to say. So he he said today that his push for lower grocery prices, François-Philippe Champagne, has yielded unspecified discounts, price freezes, and price-matching offers, but he didn't have any clear answers about how quickly or how much prices might fall. He said all major grocery firms plan to lower prices before Thanksgiving, which is well, just a few days away now, uh, and the government threatened new tax measures could be put in place if the companies failed to deliver. He, uh, here's, here's what else he had to say afterwards. Starting soon, Canadians will be able to see rollout of actions such as discount across a basket of food products, uh, price freezes, and price matching campaigns, to name a few. That sounds nice, but don't don't they all do that anyway? I mean, that's, I think I get this flyer in the mail every week that essentially says what's on sale at the grocery store. But anyway, um, you know, again, this is one of those things. They're trying to tackle affordability, and food prices might be one of the toughest ones because there's a lot going on there. And at the same time, I mean, you know, grocers are going to do, do grocers are going to do groceries. That's what they do, right? Uh, but the high food costs, the high costs of food over the past while, has really started to impact the way we buy food. Um, there was a new poll out that uh, was done in conjunction um, with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University that, of 5,500 Canadians. So it's a lot of people. Two-thirds of those surveyed uh, said they've changed the way they buy groceries over the past year. Two-thirds. That's a lot of people shifting the way they buy groceries, uh, with 86.4% saying they're now more price conscious. And I think all of us can absolutely agree with that. Here are some of the more uh, troubling stats that were found, though. Uh, 45.5% of Canadians say they're now prioritizing cost over nutritional value when grocery shopping. Uh, and three in five Canadians say they're worried about compromising on nutrition due, due to those high costs, worrying about the long-term impacts on their health. And to top it all off, as we head into Thanksgiving, of course, it's always time to figure out what your Thanksgiving dinner, the traditional one, is going to cost you. Uh, so turkey's up 18% from last year, potatoes 13%. Green beans, 11. Sweet potatoes, 40%. Squash, 63%. What's going on with that stuff? 4% um, uh, down. Cranberries are cheaper. They're the only thing that are cheaper, essentially. Helping us out with all of this is Sylvain Charlebois. He's, of course, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University that did this research and did the work on your Thanksgiving meal costs as well. And he joins me now. Sylvain, as always, thank you. Well, thank you, Ben. Nice to see you again. It is. And congratulations on the new report, which uh, details a lot of interesting things about habits that I think a lot of any of us who go to the grocery store have started to either pick up or notice. But I mean, it, this time of year, we always talk about Thanksgiving, of course. And uh, as usual, uh, this year, at least, and last year and the year before that, I guess, is that uh, the cost of our Thanksgiving dinner, our traditional Thanksgiving dinner, is up yet again. Yeah, absolutely. Just the bird itself, it's up. 18% on average from last year, uh, depending of, of what you, uh, what you use as side orders or what you serve with your bird, uh, 
uh, you're, you should expect to pay maybe five to ten percent more. But here's the deal, Ben. <laughs> well, when we when you actually look at the data in Canada, people are not spending more at the grocery store; they're actually spending less. Right. And so, so they're trading down. They're they're wasting less food as well, so they're more careful. So chances are, this weekend, whatever you buy as a bird, likely everyone will eat it, all of it. To make yeah. sure that they get their money's worth, and that, so you can feel that behaviors are changing. And frankly, behaviors are changing at the grocery store because of higher interest rates. I, I think it's really hitting a lot of people. If you're carrying a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage with a variable rate amortizable with twenty five years, you're basically paying thirteen thousand dollars more yeah. for the same quality of life, the same roof as compared to last year. So it's a lot of money. And there aren't many places to save, right? I mean, the grocery store is one place that I mean, you obviously have to eat every night and every day. And the one place you might be able to cut back a bit is on sort of discretionary spending at the grocery store. Yeah, no, exactly. So that's why it's easier to trade down at the grocery store than trading down with your roof. Because, I mean, if you're trading down with your roof, it means you have to move yeah. uh, or you have to have someone else move in with you. So that's 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 more effort. So. Right now, you're really seeing a marketplace uh, coping with higher food prices in many different ways. So people are going to discount stores or even going to dollar stores. 47% Canadians actually are visiting dollar stores more often than last year. Yeah, I buy groceries. Food. I buy groceries at the dollar store. I mean, there are things they I have do. that are just good, you know, pasta. There's just good deals at the dollar They're store. They're the same products. And it's the same product. Same products. Mm -hmm. And same uh, coming from CPG companies. And mm -hmm. why why not take advantage of that? I, I do it all the time. So, And so people are using more loyalty uh, point programs as well and uh, and also they uh, they are looking at um, well flyers more often and and finally really what uh, what really shocked us uh, was on nutrition a lot of people are prioritizing price over nutrition uh, almost half of canadians that's a right. lot of people and and three canadians out of five are concerned about their health due to higher food prices uh, compared right. to last year. So you can see that right now people are making a lot of compromises along the way. And of course, Thanksgiving dinner is one of those traditionally, the, one of those ones that involves very little in the way of processed food. So needless to say, Thanksgiving dinner in, with all that it entails can be pretty expensive. Um, tell, I'm always curious about the turkey thing because the price of turkey has gone way up and this happened sort of right before the pandemic. Do, I, do I remember you like was, turkey? Uh, I mean, not 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 particularly. I'll, I'll eat it. I eat it, <laughs> I eat it once a year, once or twice a year. Right? I mean, some people like love most it. People. Right? Yeah, some yeah. people love it. I'm not the biggest turkey fan. But, 85 percent uh, of of our turkeys industry's market is yes. Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's no it. doubt. No Everything, doubt. Uh, for for the entire year, people don't eat a whole lot of turkey. So that so so what's going on with the turkey business? Because I I gather there was sort of there was a kind of a plummet in prices, or there was a glut in 2019, and the pandemic hit, and it's just never really recovered. So they're they're still they're expensive now. Yeah, they are expensive, but don't forget they're supply managed too. Right. So so with losses, they will get losses back, and and frankly, to be honest, uh, we can criticize supply management all we want, but. There is one thing that supply management does very well is to force stakeholders to to, to virtually coordinate. Mm -hmm. So they talk to each other and they try to anticipate demand. So this year we expect demand to be up 
there's no COVID. There are no restrictions. Uh, there are no lockdowns or anything like that. So people will see each other. The price is a factor, though. So and you know you're seeing right now turkeys at $120 on the market yeah, right now. That's what I those saw. Yeah. yeah, those are premium products. But uh, my guess right now, Ben, is that if you're hosting, uh, chances are uh, you're going to be asking uh, some guests to bring over food like salads or uh, or desserts and things like that because everyone knows that food is more expensive. Like everyone knows and everyone knows that hosting is is expensive. So I think a lot of people are willing to do that. Yeah, and it's always, I mean, I've always loved Thanksgiving dinner. It's a great, it's one of the great family meals. Although I grew up in yeah. Montreal where, of course, Thanksgiving was not a big deal in, in with my French, with my French, Quebecois friends. I mean, they, I know. it wasn't a big deal at all. They used to ask you, what is a pumpkin pie? Why would you eat it? You yeah, just exactly. You just it. ate poutine with turkey or something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and a bagel. <laughs> and a bagel. Exactly. Very, very Montreal. But I guess everything on that menu is up too, like cranberry sauce, potatoes. I mean, I actually, I saw potatoes were not too bad and Brussels sprouts aren't too bad this year, but everything else felt I think expensive. I think in Quebec, there's a bit of a renaissance of uh, of Thanksgiving, to be honest. Oh, really? I, okay. I, I, they may not talk about Action Grasse or Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. but they they do celebrate food in many different ways. And the harvest uh, for sure. Nature's yes. Bounty, yeah. Nature's bounty. And, uh, you know, they're thankful and and uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually going to Texas on the weekend. Yes, you're gonna miss uh, it. You're Thanksgiving, gonna be Canadian, Canadian Thanksgiving, and I'm probably gonna say, "Wow, that's early." Yeah, it well, is. It's it snow yeah. early too, <laughs> especially down there. Yeah, because they don't have. Uh, usually, they have Thanksgiving in late November. I mean, they always have Thanksgiving, which in is late a big November. deal there. Big it is. Deal. It yeah. is. Sylvain Charlebois is with us, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. So, Sylvain, you did a big, I mean, this is a big survey, some 5,500 Canadians, and you dove pretty deep into some of the habits we've been getting into. You've been talking about the fact that a lot but more of us now are sort of more discretion, you know, use more discretion when we shop, more coupons, more loyalty yep. points, more, you know, buy this tonight, it's $5 off or deals like that. Uh, you, you found some interesting things around the, how it varies from province to province, too, because some provinces are seem to be struggling with higher food prices than others, or at least, you know, New Brunswick, Alberta, Quebec. That's where the, the highest concern was about the impact that this is having. And I was a bit surprised um, by those three provinces being in the top three. I was surprised, too, uh, to be honest, especially Alberta. Now, New Brunswick, we know that in the Atlantic where I am, there's lots of poverty and and uh, food security is is not a new issue. But Alberta surprised me, to be honest, and uh, and Quebec was number three. So you can mm -hmm. see that something's going on there. In fact, just in the province of Quebec, actually, both the Metro and um, and Loblaws actually opened up fifty six new discount uh, discount stores in right. the last year. So like you can tell sort of stuff. Right. The data is yeah. telling them well, people are shifting. People are actually moving. They're becoming more frugal. So. I knew that, but Alberta is really. I think Alberta is is uh, is because real estate prices are still quite high, and I think a lot of people are just trying to stay afloat, uh, and they're not spending as much money, and and they're concerned as well. So there are they are making more nutritional compromises, but the big one, Ben, I got to tell you, generation. When you look at generations, yeah. millennials, millennials, eh? millennials, yeah. Whoa, now. That group is being hard hit right now. They're they're being educated in terms of of uh, of borrowing costs. It's it's actually it actually costs money to borrow money, and this is a concept that 
the older generations knew about. Uh, certainly when I got out of university, I mean, interest rates were like 15%. Yeah, so, same, same. But, but. But, but rates were so low for so long, uh, it's hard uh, not to not to overlook this the fact that interest rates went from like almost zero to five percent in a matter of twelve months. It's just it's been violent for them, and our data shows that it shows that millions are millennials are really struggling, and it makes sense because the the oldest millennials are what forty three, forty four years old now today. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably have kids. They have a mortgage. They're active economically, uh, and that, that that's coming at a cost. And so that's probably why they're really hard hit by what's going on. Yeah, you. I mean, nearly seventy percent of your millennial respondents were saying were expressed concern about compromising nutrition to the high because of high food prices. That's just the ones worried about the nutrition side of it. That's huge. Not to mention that's the changing the habits. I mean, of course, at that age, you're at the, you're, in some ways you're at your most vulnerable financially because you've probably yeah, borrowed quite a bit financially. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, boomers and uh, and the greatest generation, uh, people born uh, at the end of the Second War or before, well, they have other issues to worry about, of course. But uh, I mean, let's face it, they're not eating as much. Uh, food costs aren't necessarily a problem. And so that's why I think millennials are really the key. So if I if I were the government, certainly I would look at, at, at those at that particular data. And Gen Z's are like, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of Gen Zs are still living with their parents. Yeah. So that's probably why the data was not as alarming. Yeah, and you could see why. I mean, when you look at voting patterns these days, and that big shift from you know the, the incumbent liberals to the possibility of a of an opposition conservative party, for instance, you could see why millennials have started to take a look at other parties. Because if you ask them, "Is life better for you now than it was eight years ago?" I think the answer is a resounding, "Absolutely not." And you can yeah. see that. I mean, this is a, it's a confluence of many different things, not all of them political, but but it is. It is It'll interesting be interesting to see, to see whether or not they decide to participate and actually vote. There's That's that. The thing. There's that. Yeah. Is there any light on the horizon here? I mean, I know that I know that uh, that the government is has, has sort of promised to try and get tough on the on on the on the retailers and and sort of try to bring grocery prices down. It feels like we're seeing a little bit of it, but I'm not seeing. A, I don't feel like they're ever going to be as inexpensive as they once were. No, no. Uh, if if you think that. Uh, that food prices will go back to where they were before COVID, you're delusional, really. I mean, there are some products that are cheaper. In fact, pork is actually uh, cheaper than before COVID. Mm. And you'll see the lost leader here and there, uh, and you'll get more deals. But the market is actually taking care of food inflation, no matter what Ottawa decides to do here. Uh, I actually do think that that right now markets are, are addressing – our food inflation issue. Uh, food inflation at 6.8%. It is actually the second lowest within the G7 still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and both you and I, we we spoke about this uh, many moons ago, and uh, and it's still the same. I mean, we, we've actually done okay despite what's going on with, with food prices. Um, but And we are expecting, last year we presented Canada's food price report. We were expecting to finish the year uh, with a food inflation rate of 5%, that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, we're pretty confident that our forecast a year ago was accurate. And uh, we are expecting the gap between food inflation and and uh, inflation to be at zero by February or March of 2024. And that's a big one because right now people are shocked at the grocery store. 
because the the inflation rate for everything else in the economy is lower. But as soon as other things become a problem, na you name it, okay? Name your poison. Uh, well, food prices become less of an issue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're. Yeah, eventually, there's going to be a meeting in the middle at some point because you're right. It's yeah. this. It's this. It's this perfect storm of stuff that's happened, and it just is the most obvious at the grocery store because those prices have been higher for longer than every just about everything else in the well, market. When I when I spoke to the minister about yeah. uh, about the food inflation situation, I actually showed him a graph that was pretty telling. Industrial prices have actually outpaced uh, retail prices. So pressures are still real within the supply chain. People think that, that grocers are profiteering. They're taking advantage. Well, we, we don't see it with food. Maybe it's the case with lipsticks, uh, or t-shirts or, or pharmaceuticals, but for food, it's not the case at all. Industrial prices are still rising. Uh, and and the and the CPI is still rising, but at a much lower right. pace. So and the that's why the we inputs, don't think right the inputs. And in that's the, why in the, yeah. exactly. And I and I think that's why uh, it is important to to uh, tell Canadians that that things aren't going to go back to where they were. Food prices won't drop. So for Ottawa to come forward and say we're going to be controlling prices, we're going to make sure that you get better deals at the grocery store. Honestly, it would be the worst thing to do because you're discouraging investments and grocers would say, you know what? I can't make money in this business. I'm walking away. Right. Well, and, so, and we yeah. want to encourage competition. We don't want to discourage competition. We want to encourage competition. Competition eventually is what brings the price of everything down. If, everyone, if anyone remembers when 99 cent pizza slices came along right after pizza was expensive, I mean, that, there's competition for you. So they have a great time in Texas. Uh, give them our best for Canadian Thanksgiving. Absolutely. We will.